0: I've come to the end of one of those weeks. Have you had those before? I mention that because um, a couple things. One, many of us grew up in places where you're kind of, at least by your own expectations, to put on the face and, you know, bring the happy face to church, and sometimes it's just not the way it is, right? Sometimes we have really difficult weeks. Sometimes we come rejoicing. But the good news is, regardless of how we come, God's truth is here for us, and He offers us His Spirit, and He offers to breathe life into us once again, because we need Him. Yeah? It's true. Super thankful we have been um, learning some really important lessons from Nehemiah's account of his experience building the wall around Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We have seen Nehemiah's fervency to see God's kingdom built, to see his will be done, to see God's promises fulfilled, and to see safety, honor, and dignity returned to the reputation of God and also to the people who serve him and represent him. Some of these questions we've been thinking about, am I fervent about the will of the Lord. Those have been just playing over and over in my mind. Or am I just all about my agenda? These are good things to consider as we head into Nehemiah chapter 2 today. I want to back up. We're in our fourth teaching through Nehemiah. And um, just thought we'd back up and get a running start at it. So think about week one. We started with an overview, and we, we observed a pattern that runs not only through Nehemiah, but also through Scripture, and we talked about this pattern, and it's this. There's an invitation to dwell in relationship with God. He makes every provision for that to be possible, whether it be in the Garden of Eden or here in Jerusalem or ultimately through Christ. He provides every provision in order for us to dwell with him. Then men and women sin by their own willful choices. We decide we're going to try it out our way, typically first. And even so, there's a response of grace. There's a return way, a way of repentance that's provided. He provides for our sin. And then there's a renewing of his promise of presence. This is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. And again, we see this very clearly in the book of Nehemiah. And one of the things that's become evident to me as we're studying through, and I'm beginning to see some of these things to come together even more clearly as I'm studying them and teaching them, and then as we're talking about them together is this. Church, Nehemiah's account is an invitation for vine and branch to get reignited, re-excited about building the kingdom of God, yeah? I'm excited about that and see see that being stirred in us. So in week two, we saw that Nehemiah had a fervent desire to see the Lord's kingdom built or his will to be done. I'm going to use that interchangeably to see the kingdom of God built. So we see that's specifically what Nehemiah is doing, but wanting the will of the Lord to be accomplished. And again, our study together has asked us, has required us to ask this question are we fervent about building the kingdom of god so as a litmus test if you remember this a couple of weeks ago i put up a pie chart remember and it was kind of captured some of our most common prayer requests and we agreed oh, that seems pretty accurate and we recognized that 77% of our prayers are often cover or often around Events, travel mercies, you know, things we're doing, our our events, things we're involved in, and then illness. I want to talk about this for a minute because after a couple weeks ago we went into our prayer and praise time and it got awkwardly quiet, right? After a friend of mine said to me, Well, my wife is sick and traveling, so I'm definitely not bringing that up. (laughs) But But the purpose of that was not to condemn us or to shorten our prayer and praise time, but to provide us insight into our own hearts and to our values. For us to just pause a minute and go, yeah, wait a minute. I do spend an awful lot of time talking to the Lord, and I typically start with me and for us to be able to reevaluate so i don't i don't intend or i don't think the bible's intending for us to walk away asking okay well what can i bring up during prayer and praise time what what can i not like what's off limit that's not the question we should be asking the question we should walk away with is this how do we adjust our values so that we're seeking after the same thing that god speaks and during prayer and praise time those things come out of our mouths yeah so the goal of Nehemiah's account is not to adjust our words, but our treasures. We shouldn't be thinking about how do I, you know, line up, but how do I value what God values, love what he loves, to treasure what he treasures, to grow in our fervency, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. How do we grow in our fervency for that? That was week two. We talked in week three in Nehemiah's fervency for God's will, for his kingdom to be built, was rooted in God's word. He evaluates himself and his family and his community based on God's decreed will and accordingly he calls for repentance personally for his own family and then also for his community and in all this nehemiah is living out this belief that god will fulfill his promises he will keep his covenants and it's right for us to think rightly about ourselves as god intends to fulfill his promises in us and among us And so for us in the places where we have sinned and we have made our agenda preeminent. By the way, if you're wondering if you have made your agenda preeminent, if you have kind of considering is your will really important? If you've got conflict in your relationships, you've made your will pretty important. James 3 and 4. But if that's true, we're called to repentance and turning from our own self-focused agenda and, and this weak and tiny little kingdom to turn to the big and glorious kingdom of God. To turn. We're reminded, as we were reminded that a person whose desire for God's will a person whose desire for God's will is regularly being hijacked by your own agenda, that person will never persevere in building the kingdom. Especially when things get difficult. So in week three, we were encouraged to repent of sin, to trust God, to fulfill His promises, and to join in. Join in what God is already doing here at Vine and Branch. So now we come to week four. We're in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that we have heard and already received, and the word we're going to hear tonight. I thank you that regardless of how we come, Whether rejoicing or struggling a bit, you are ready to meet us with your truth. But we also come not just to get fixed, we come to bend ourselves to you. We're not just coming to change our mood, but to change our minds. Lord, I confess to you and you know I need a mind change. So help my brothers and sisters this night join this bent cup as we pour ourselves out and open ourselves up to be filled with the glories of your presence and your person through the truths of your word. And we thank you for your promises to do so. You will do it. It is true. Amen. So tonight we're going to see Nehemiah before King Artaxerxes. We're going to watch how God directs the heart of the king to accomplish his will, and he begins to unfold his plan, not just for building a wall, but for rebuilding his people, and the building, of ultimately, of his kingdom. And through all of this, we're going to see Nehemiah's interactions, his character, and I think we'll gain some... Um, opportunity to be challenged in our own hearts and our own character as well. So here's the thesis. Here's the truth we're getting after tonight. Nehemiah's fervency for God's kingdom was demonstrated through his persevering obedience, his spiritual preparation, and his physical activation of his resources, gifts, and abilities to do the will of God. That's If I could boil it all down into one point, that's it. That's what we're getting after. Nehemiah's fervency for God's kingdom. And so we see this through his persevering obedience, the fact that he was spiritually prepared, and then he's activating everything that he has, who he is, his resources, to build the kingdom of of God. And so here's that thesis applied to us. This is where we're ultimately going as invited participants to the kingdom building. We demonstrate our fervency for God's will by long obedience, spiritual preparation, and physical activation of our gifts, our resources, and our abilities. Okay, so let's jump in. First, we see that Nehemiah. Nehemiah's. We see Nehemiah's persevering obedience demonstrated i'm going to back up a little bit we finished up nehemiah's prayer if you remember at the end of chapter one i'm going to back into the last verse of that because uh, it lends itself insight to the beginning of chapter two verse one but nehemiah ends his prayer with this chapter t- one verse 10 O lord let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. It's interesting that he calls King Artaxerxes this man. He does not, in his prayer, offer up this king, because he's talking to the king of all kings. And so he says, so grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And then he finishes with this. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. That's a loaded statement. Historically, a cupbearer was a high-ranking official, and he was in charge of serving the king. And this is not a position you get assigned to whimsically. It's not like, hey, we need a cupbearer. Give me that kid over there. right? That's not the way... This happens. You don't get assigned to this role, especially if you're a conquered foreigner. Nehemiah would have to have proven himself over and over and over again. Remember, he was born in captivity. He was enslaved. So he's a servant somewhere around the kingdom. And yet over and over, over periods of time, over little acts piled on top of one another, Nehemiah finds himself moving up in ranks and being offered different positions until he finds himself the cupbearer to the king. Years ago, Eugene Peterson wrote a book titled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love the title so much I read the book. The title is actually better than the book. Okay? But it's really, he does a great job capturing this reality that the Christian life is most often small steps obedience, not perfectly, like this, but always in the same direction over a long period of time. Life in the mundane. He captures it really well. A long obedience in the same direction. This is the manner in which Nehemiah would have had to have lived to have become the cupbearer to the king. His faith in God, in Yahweh, his knowledge of the Old Testament, of the Torah, and the prophets, guided his character. It led him to live in specific and particular ways that led him to his position. There was an Athenian historian, he was also a philosopher and a soldier. His name was Xenophon, and he lived the same time of Nehemiah, roughly 430 to 354 BC, a little bit after. And in his writings, in these ancient writings outside of the Bible, he actually describes a cupbearer's duties in the royal court of the Medes, another uh, close culture. And according to his description, the cupbearer was typically handsome, had the role of presenting certain persons to the king and keeping others out. He served and poured the wine for the king and had to keep it always in close quarters. And he would drink it and make sure that nobody would come in contact with the vessel of wine nor his cup. He would drink it and test it for poison before he would present it to the king. So the cupbearer was also a trusted advisor. He was with the king almost constantly. He was expected to give advice behind closed doors because he was often the only one that would go with the king from event to event to event and talking to different people. So being almost always in the king's presence, the cupbearer listened to many private and often secret information. Therefore, he was required to be trustworthy and able to keep confidence But he was also required to maintain a good countenance. He always had to look happy. If he didn't look happy, it could reflect on the king's leadership. And at minimum, you would lose your job, but you often, the cupbearer, would lose his life, like we saw in Genesis chapter 40. And so for the cupbearer, any drop in countenance in the presence of the king could result in in the loss of position or like I said his life and this thought of his life literally flashing before his eyes is what caused Nehemiah to pen two verses verse 1 I had not been sad in his presence so he references he hasn't been sad like I've done my job thus I've kept my head and then he also says in verse 2 when it's re- when the king realizes his that his heart is sad, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, in the month of Nisan, and we remember this is four months post the beginning of the opening of the book, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king Now I had not been sad in his presence. And what we see here in this very opening is this, that Nehemiah was so fervent for God's kingdom that he put Artaxerxes' esteem, his job, and even his own life under the authority of his fervency to see God's will be done, his kingdom to be built. You with me? He had never lost his countenance before the king. Except here. Why? Because he had a greater king. And he was more concerned about that king's kingdom than Artaxerxes. So two life lessons for us right in this very first verse. Here's the first one. We demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom by being diligent in the small, mundane unseen things over long periods of time. A long obedience in the same direction. What guides our everyday behavior? Hear me. We, we're always trying to grow, change, be different. A lot of times that's for us, isn't it? I want my life to be better. I want my wife not to be so upset with me. I want my kids to respect me. I want to be liked by my friends. I don't want to have these, you know, these vices that cause me trouble. That's necessarily bad, but it's not sufficient. The thing that will help us truly become new is a fervency to see the will of God done. Do you know what will keep you obeying when nobody else sees? that You want to see, you long to see Christ's kingdom built. So we demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom through diligence in the small, mundane, and unseen things over long periods of time. Paul says it this way to the Colossians, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Here's the second of life lessons that we are able to pull from Nehemiah's experience here. We demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom by holding God's thoughts, God's opinions and values above the values of the most important people in our lives. Again, Nehemiah considered God's thoughts and God's desires more important than the king's, who literally held his physical life in his hands. The second thing we see in this account in chapter 2 is that Nehemiah was spiritually prepared I'm going to read verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. In other words, I'm sorry, this is not your issue, it's mine. You go on living forever. I'm having a bad day. But why should, my, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So here, right in the middle of this conversation, Nehemiah lets us into his heart, and he says, Oh man. Here we go. So he shoots up a prayer to God. And in this section, the king asks Nehemiah three different questions: verse 2, verse 4, and verse 6. Why is your face sad? What are you requesting? How long will you be gone? And Nehemiah, we see, knows how to answer each of those three questions. I think sometimes we want to turn this into a formula. Man, how did he know to respond like that on the spot? You know, When I'm under pressure, I babble, I don't know what to say, let me get back to you. But he was bold, his life was in danger. How did he know to do this under great pressure? How did he find the courage to respond the way he did? But Nehemiah didn't respond the way he did because he had read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Or because he knew John Maxwell's five leadership levels. But he knew how to answer those questions because he was spiritually prepared. And he had been preparing for a really long time. So I prayed to the God of heaven. But remember, he was doing this four months ago. In verses Chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we watch Nehemiah. He prayed, he fasted. He sought to know and to love the will and the ways of the Lord. Nehemiah's mind, his values, and his prayers were saturated with God's word. He literally prays Deuteronomy and Leviticus, right? We saw that last week in chapter 1. And then he responds to God's truth by repentance. I see my life. I see my family. I see my community in light of the truth of your word, and we need to turn. You're right. We're wrong. We're on a U-turn trip. And Nehemiah recalled and relied upon the promises of God. He calls the promises of God to mind and says, we're not completely lost. We've got generational sin patterns. We are the biggest dysfunctional family on the planet right now. But there's hope. Because your word promises that you will redeem your people. And we're your people, so come on and redeem us. And we see this reality built out in Nehemiah's life in thus way he was spiritually prepared. And so when I say be spiritually prepared, I'm talking about these kinds of habits that we've seen in the life of Nehemiah. He prayed, he fasted, his mind, his values, his prayers were saturated with God's word. He responded to the truth by turning to it. He recalled and relied upon the God's promises. When I say be spiritually prepared, take one of those four areas and say, I'm going to get after that. Right? I'm trying to be practical here. I'm not just saying, be spiritually prepared, and then you walk out going, great, what does that mean? What means those four things? Put them in your notes. So here's the life lesson we can pull out of this section. We demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom by being spiritually prepared. My brother was a chaplain uh, for the... um, Colorado Rockies farm team in Asheville, North Carolina. And he started off and he had all these rookie players and they started more and more of them started coming to chapel. And he was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. These guys are under so much pressure. It's so hard. And he said, I felt like the Lord said to me, Brent, be spiritually prepared. You can't figure it out. You can't read enough books. Be spiritually prepared prepared, and I'll give you the words when you need them. And we see that's true in the life of Nehemiah. He was spiritually prepared, and that didn't start in chapter 2, verse 1. It started years and years ago when he was listening to the stories of his father and his mother and his grandparents about the history of their people and the promises of God, and he chose to believe them. So the life lesson for us is we demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom by being spiritually prepared. My mom likes to quote an author she read years ago who wrote this, spiritual preparation always precedes the removal of an obstacle. In other words, if if we are to remove obstacles, we need to be spiritually prepared. And Nehemiah was in the role he was in and the position he was in with the influence he had. Not because he was lucky, but because he was spiritually prepared. So regardless of where you are, Vine and Branch family, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, whether you're married or single, or you've got siblings, or you're the only one, or you've got no kids, or ten kids, what gifts you possess, God, if you belong to Him, God wants to and will use you, along with others in His community, to build His kingdom. So be spiritually prepared. You and I demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom by being faithful in small things, by holding God's opinion above everybody else's, and by being spiritually prepared. The third thing we see in these first eight verses of Nehemiah's account was that Nehemiah was physically activated to use his resources and his gifts and his abilities to do the will of God. Verses 5 through 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight so that you se- that you send me to- i'm sorry if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to judah to the city of my father's graves that i may rebuild it by the way this is the same king who had stopped the building of the temple years ago under ezra there was some complaining going on and Artaxerxes sent a note and said, we're going to stop all that building. So now Nehemiah knows he's asking the same guy who shut it down to restart it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province of beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keepers of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, it's obvious that Nehemiah had some qualities and gifts and abilities that had been honed over long periods of time, stacked on top of each other, and ultimately were ordered by God's sovereign hand. It's true. It's also obvious that during the four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2, along with his prayers and fasting and repentance and recalling God's promises, Nehemiah had been applying his gifts, we're assuming based on some of these things that we see throughout the rest of the book, of administration and discernment and planning. In other words, Nehemiah offered all the gifts that he had to the service of building the kingdom. Nehemiah had been praying, seeking the Lord, and as he did, the Lord ministered wisdom to him quickened his gifts, and activated him to works of righteousness. Nehemiah recognizes the hand of the Lord from his praying to his planning, and that's why he ends this section with an acknowledgement of God's great and providential work by saying, the king granted me what I asked for, for, because due to, the hand of my God was upon me. So here's the life lesson. We demonstrate our fervency for God's kingdom by activating in righteousness. Now, when I use that phrase, activating in righteousness, for those of you who have been around for a little bit, that should bring up a thought, right? Remember when We were rolling through our definition of the gospel that we worked through last year. By the way, I take this from the first six chapters. It's a summary of the first six chapters of Romans. What is the gospel? You can say it with me if you remember. Deserving wrath, justified by grace, counted righteous, rejoicing in salvation, activated to righteousness. It's the gospel from beginning to end and activated to righteousness, in other words, seeking and living God's kingdom building, is the culminating work of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, taking root in our lives. You with me? Activated to righteousness, building the kingdom, is the end result of the gospel taking root in our lives. If Christ has rescued you, you want to build his kingdom. We read this in the second catechism. The end, it reads, that I'm a terrible sinner. I don't have it memorized yet. We're working on it, right? That he, I've been saved by him, and because of this, I give him gratitude. I asked my kids, and then I asked a couple of friends, can we be, belong to God? Can we be saved from our sin without gratitude? No. If you understand the gospel, gratitude is the natural response to the gospel. And here what we're learning, Nehemiah was activated to righteousness. That is the appropriate response to being rescued by God. It is the culmination of the gospel. In other words, we were born for this. This kingdom building that were that we're talking about, that we're striving for, that we're aiming at, Vine and Branch Church, we were built for it. We were born for this. Remember what Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, or so that, or in order that, or for the purpose of, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into darkness the kingdom of His marvelous light. It's what we've been born for. It's what we've been reborn for. i to give you an illustration to kind of summarize um, all these things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Let me get my little magic bag over here. Oh wait, those are the mints. Not those. Okay. Couple things, a couple symbols to think about what it means to be activated in righteousness. There's two ways for us to think about helping build the kingdom or how we approach church, how we come to church together. The first one is that it's a key. We can ask ourselves, how do I fit? What do I unlock? What's my job in kingdom building? How do I function here? What's my giftedness? What do I bring to the community? What are my specific responsibilities? That's kind of what keys do. They look for a specific keyhole, and then they open it. I've got a specific thing to do. What is it? What's my part? How do I do that? I'm going to argue that that's a very Western way to look at building the kingdom. Who am I? What do I have to offer? first, First question. When we start with us, we look to find our specific role, how to engage it. I must employ my gifts with competence. I need to find what we've called and heard said my sweet spot. Right. I think there's a better way than this. Who knows what that is? Yeah, the old people are saying antenna. The little kids are like, "Ah, oh, it's an extendy stick." <laughs> we, we don't see these many anymore, right? My first cell phone had one of these on there. Believe it or not, not that long, but it's an antenna. Antenna starts to, to look for something. What is God doing? How is his kingdom built? What are the express, expressed needs in his word? What are the unique needs in this body? How is my church at work building God's kingdom? What are my leaders communicating about the direction? It's seeking to tune itself into something. It's not looking for a job to do. You following me? Are there ways I can support? In, in opposition to the key, the antenna starts with God and what He's doing, and I'm trying to tune myself to Him. We move to His people, what they need, what they're doing together. And then we employ ourselves. Sometimes we'll find our sweet spot. Oftentimes we won't. More often, I would say this we discover our sweet spot when we look for the Father. I've been thinking about this in application of this message and I would say I have discovered gifts I didn't know I had because I met needs I didn't want to meet. You with me? When we tune ourselves to the Lord and to the body we will discover what we were born for. But if we try to discover what we were born for and then take it to the body I'm going to say you're always going to feel like a key without a lock. You with me? So I wanted to give us a word picture as we think about building the kingdom of the Lord. And this really is encompassing by way of application our last three times together. But as we begin thinking about being activated to righteousness I want us to think about ourselves as antennas tuning in, not keys looking for a spot to fit. So as we wrap up here's the kind of key things we learned from verses 1 through 8 in Nehemiah's story. We demonstrate and also develop our fervency for God's will by being diligent in the small, mundane, unseen things over long periods of time. A long obedience in the same direction. We demonstrate and develop our fervency for God's will by holding God's thoughts, God's opinions, and values above the values of the most important people in our lives. We demonstrate and develop our fervency for God's kingdom by being spiritually prepared. And we demonstrate and develop our fervency for God's will and his kingdom by activating in righteousness. Father, thank you for your glorious truth. And that you have fed us well with the untold depths of wisdom that come from your word. O oh Lord, help us, help me, help Mary. Please help my children, help my church family, my friends to love and to heed applying your word, to love to see your kingdom built and to see the culminating effect of the gospel having its greatest work in us working for you, producing fruit for you, building the kingdom with you and together. What a great privilege. What a great way to love you and to love each other. What a what a glorious calling. So we may we um, consider just absorbing your truth as a great grace opportunity tonight. And may we leave from here rejoicing because you've invited us to build your kingdom. Rejoicing that we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness to your glorious kingdom of light. All because of King Christ, our brother and our rescuer. Amen.